kind of see part of my story like Joseph. God brought them out of something that at the beginning of the story makes no sense. Even in the middle of the story, you sometimes wonder, God, what are you doing? It's an isolated country run by a military government and under civil war for the last 60 years. I had to live in a hotel. We weren't allowed to go very many places. We were even watched and followed sometimes. I was able to get permission to live up there teaching English. So I started having this Bible study. Within a year, we had baptized believers. I knew that's where I was supposed to be. One morning, I got to the school. Another friend pulls into the compound, just frantic. There were investigators. I'd just been kicked out of my country. I felt lost. I knew where my heart wanted to be, but I had to trust that God had a reason, and I have to be okay with not knowing why. I was in a neighboring country. I was in this big city. I went to the market to buy some food. All of a sudden, I hear the language of my people. And I realized there are about a half a million of them living in my country. They come here just overwhelmed with life in the big city. I felt a lot like they were. I was a refugee. I was in a country I didn't want to be in, but I couldn't go back. Some of them found community in a local church here. And I went to the pastor of that church and asked him, what were the needs here? And after some discussion, he said, what we need is a Bible school in this city, how to share their faith, how to start a church. I don't know how to start a school. If I need to learn a new skill, I'll learn a new skill. The first day of school, I had 50 students show up. They just kept coming and coming, with little or no sleep, just because they're hungry to learn. And at this point, they're reaching their own people. And they go to a different part of the city to share their faith with factory workers, many of whom have never heard the name of Jesus, show them love, share Christ with them, and plant the gospel seed. Reforms are happening in the country I was banned from. They have new leaders now. I've been granted entry, and I'm making plans to move back again. Looking back on all this, I see that wherever God wants me to be, that's where I feel like I'm home. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to First Baptist Church this morning on this nice overcast Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Advent, and you've just been watching a Lottie Moon uh, uh, video that's really talking about our missionaries overseas, and when you give to Lottie Moon, those are the type of people that you are supporting who are carrying the gospel to the world. And as I was watching that video, I was thinking, oh, what it would be like if we had that same hunger that those folks in some other countries have to hear the gospel. I think we get so used to hearing the gospel that we kind of get anesthetized to it. And then we get numb to it and we forget the great riches that we have uh, as we worship the Christ who's given us his grace and salvation through him. So uh, I just am so excited that we get to participate in giving to Lottie Moon right now. We have given $8,629 toward our $20,000 goal, so we still got a ways to go. So if you still want to give, we have opportunity for you to do that after the service. And we'll be doing that for the next few weeks as, as well. Um, so just keep that in mind. I just want to remind you, we're talking about the fourth Sunday of Advent. And we're talking about love today. And we're going to light the candle 
of love this morning. And I was thinking about how uh, the song I used to sing when I was growing up, maybe you did too, Oh How He Loves You and Me. You remember that song? Oh How He Loves You and Me. He gave His life. What more could He give? What more could Christ give than His life? What more does Jesus need to do to get us motivated? What, does Jesus, what more does He need to do to get us energized to be able to worship Him? And I hope that you've come today to worship Him and that you understand the love that He has towards you. I was on the way to church this morning and a guy, was, a preacher was talking about a guy who made a juicer. Uh, and he, he's real healthy because he does juicing. Maybe you do that. And he was talking about it, and the guy said, well, you know, you, you're really excited about this juicer. He said, well, you would be too if something changed your life the way that this juicer has changed mine. Has Jesus changed our life? I mean, he got excited about a juicer. How much more should we be excited about the love that we have in Christ? And I hope that you have sensed that as well. So I hope that that's your heartbeat today, and I hope that you're going to be able to worship with that same joy and enthusiasm. And if you're a guest with us, we're so delighted to have you. I'd love for you to stop by our Welcome table in just a moment whenever our service is over and let us speak to you. We would love the opportunity to get to know you and we also have a gift for you. So we'd like to give that to you at the end of the service. Let me just remind you of three things quick so you'll be in the loop. Uh, tonight we have our Christmas communion, always a special service. Let me invite you to be here. You do not want to miss it. It's going to be a wonderful time of, of worship and observing the Lord's Supper, and I hope that you will be here. And also, this coming Wednesday night, we're going to be doing some ministry to people in our church who are homebound. We're going to be out Christmas caroling. We're going to have a hayride. Now, now the hayride is predominantly for children and some of their parents, but now we're going to need other people to go out and uh, minister to some of the other people on the outlying areas. So I hope that you'll be here at 5 o'clock Wednesday night to help us minister to some people who really need encouragement. And then finally, Christmas Eve will be Friday at 5 p.m. We look forward to seeing you here for that special service. Invite your family and friends. What a wonderful way uh, to celebrate Christmas through the Christmas Eve service. And I hope that you'll be a part of all those things. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us just to be able to meet together and worship you and sing your praise and to reflect on your great love for us. And Lord, help us to never get numb to it, never get used to it. Let us always be in wonder and awe of the riches that we have in Christ. So we just pray for these moments that we share together. I pray that you would be exalted, your name would be glorified, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. We would ask that you would stand this morning and join us as we sing Christmas music for the Lord.
we have lit the candles of hope, peace, and joy. Now we light the candle of love. Jesus demonstrated self-giving love in his ministry as the Good Shepherd. Christmas reminds us of the supreme love God has for us when he sent Jesus into the world to redeem us. Romans 8, 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let us pray. Father, teach us to love as Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. May the love we have for one another point others to the love of Christ and give us a love for the world that motivates us to share the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. time for the children to exit for Children's Church.
Thank you, Praise Band, for leading us in worship. And certainly that was a wonderful song as we prepare for our message today. And I was thinking, you know, we're unwrapping Christmas and we're talking about the great high priest. And I was wanting to ask you a question. I know you're ready for Christmas and all the gifts that you will be receiving or giving. And I wanted to ask you a question. Have you ever received a gift that when you opened it, you thought, I've already got one of these. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, you might not say it, but you're thinking, this is a re-gift. And so, with your mouth, you're saying thank you, but with your mind, you're thinking, who can I give this to? You ever done that? A few years ago, I remember receiving a flashlight for Christmas. I said, awesome, I, I need another flashlight. I mean, lots of times we have flashlights, but this flashlight was, was different. I had a magnet on it so I could just stick it on the side of whatever I was working on. I didn't have to hold it. It had a, an attachment. It was a work light, and it would just attach so I could direct the light exactly where I wanted it to go. And then I realized, well, this is not like all of my other flashlights. This one is different. It's unique. It's not like any other flashlight I had. And so the writer of Hebrews is unwrapping Christmas, and he wants you and me to discover that we have a high priest who is unlike any other high priest. We don't just have a high priest, we have a great high priest, and he is unlike any other. And, and I want to demonstrate for you. So I, I brought some items to help me demonstrate what I'm talking about today. Now, some of you are going to have no idea what I'm about to show you. How many of you know what this is? Okay, a number of you. Now, some of the younger people are like, what is that? This is an LP vinyl record, right? And you remember playing the long play. It had like five songs on one side and five on the other. And this was a neat thing when it came out. And people had phonographs or record players or whatever you used to play it. And that's what happened. And then, then something else came out later. And it was like this. How many of you know what this is? It's called a what? A 45. See, we got some people here <laughs> who have been around. A 45, and it was even better because you could just like, if you just wanted to buy one song, it'd be one song on one side and one song on the other. And so it was even better than the LP because you could get the exact song you wanted. But you know, you couldn't really ride around town when you were on a date with a record player in your car. And so later, something else came out, and it looked something like this. It's called a what? Like I said. Some of you have been around an 8-track, and this was neat because you could... Get an 8-track player and put it in your car and you could ride around with it and listen to your music, but there was a problem. Sometimes that little tape would get eaten up by your 8-track your cassette player. And so, and it was also bulky. You could you just ride around with a big box of these in your car. So then later, something else came out. It looked a lot like this. A cassette. It's a lot smaller, easier to manage, and so you could store those a lot easier when you're riding around but it still had the same problem, that tape. Anybody ever had a tape get hung out, stuck in your car? But do you see what's happening? It keeps getting what? Smaller and better. Then it came out with something like this. The CD. And that was a lot better because it's a lot more compact. You can put a lot on it. You can, it's durable and it was hard to mess them up, so, you know, this was a new thing, and it was great, and it went for a while, and then something else came out later. 
And I really can't demonstrate this because it's like an MP3. Now, some of the older people who know what the LP is don't know what an MP3 is. But an MP3 is the new way we kind of listen to music. And you can play it on your phone, or you can play it in your car, you can play it on your computer. And so what you see is uh, the way we listen to music gets what? Better and better and better. And so when the writer of Hebrews was writing Hebrews, he wanted you to understand when it comes to Jesus, it doesn't get any better than Jesus. He is the supreme. It doesn't get any better than him. And so he's writing you to let you know that he is the high priest and it doesn't get any better. He is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. And now we're going to realize he's better than the Old Testament priest. It doesn't get any better than Jesus. And so we're going to see today that Jesus is qualified not just to be your priest, but to be your great high priest. I don't know if any of you have ever been, I mean, I know you've been to a doctor, but when you go to a doctor, you always want to know something about that doctor. You want to know, is he qualified? Is that doctor qualified to treat me? Especially if you're going to a surgeon. If you're going to a surgeon, you want to know, is that surgeon qualified to operate on you? Now just think about it for a moment. Let's just say you go to Dylan McLeod, and you've got to have gallbladder surgery. And you're waiting to have your gallbladder operated on, and all of a sudden I walk in with my scrubs on. And I said, today, I am going to be removing your gallbladder. And you're going to say, oh, no, you're not. Because you're going to want to know what my qualifications are. You're going to want to know what my credentials are, what my experience is. And so you're going to want to know how am I qualified, and you're not going to accept my seminary degree in theology as a means to say I'm qualified to take your gallbladder out. But when you go to a surgeon, somebody who's going to operate on you, you want to know their qualifications. You want to know their experience. You're going to ask the question like, how many of these have you done? And how many were successful? (laughs) You want to know. But when it comes to Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus has all the qualifications to be our high priest. So if you've got your Bible, and I know you do, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5 and... Hebrews chapter 7. So you hold your place in Hebrews 7, and then you turn to Hebrews 5, and I need you to listen very intently. If you've been sitting a while, I don't want you to drift off because this is a very important passage as we realize who Jesus is and why it's important. And so we're looking at Hebrews chapter 5, and we're going to see two things in this particular passage, and I'm going to give you some sub-points. We're going to realize that the supremacy of Christ. He is the supreme high priest. We're also going to realize the sufficiency of Christ. The supremacy and the sufficiency. So the very first thing I want you to notice is the supremacy of Jesus as our high priest. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priest. Jerry Vines once said this. He said when a a Jew would read the book of Hebrews, he would read that Jesus is the high priest, he said, on what basis does Jesus qualify to be our high priest? And the the Jew would say, well, did Jesus ever serve in the temple as a high priest? And the answer would be no. Did he ever go into the holy of holies behind the veil and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant? And the answer would be no. Can you trace his lineage back to Aaron? And the answer would be no. Was he of the tribe of Levi? 
The answer would be no, at least in the passage that we see today, we're going to get some clarity. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And a priest had to come from the lineage of Aaron. And a priest was required to be from the tribe of Levi. And that's where we get the, the Levites from. They were the priestly tribe. And so, how does Jesus qualify as a supreme high priest if he doesn't meet all these prerequisites? And so the writer of Hebrews says, listen, Jesus is not only your priest, but he is your great high priest. He is your supreme high priest. And we don't need another. So I want to let you know, under the supremacy of Christ, we see his legitimacy. Jesus is legitimate. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now what I want you to notice is that no priest was self-appointed. No little boy, when he was growing up, would say, when I grow up, I want to be a priest. He might say it, but he didn't make it so. He couldn't say, I want to choose the priesthood as my career path. He didn't have that luxury. God appointed who could be a priest and who couldn't be a priest. You know, the Apostle Paul says the same thing today. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, it says this. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, and then helps, administrations, and then a variety of tongues. God appointed people in the church to serve where he wanted them to serve. Paul said that God appoints you to serve in the different capacities in the church so that it can function like it should. Some people say, well, I just volunteer. You do not volunteer in the church. You are appointed. God has appointed you a ministry in the church, a place of service. You are appointed to serve in the body. Paul said that about himself in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. Paul said, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Paul said that he was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. God appoints us. God appointed, uh, appoints people today, and he appointed the priest back in that day. God would determine who could be a priest and who could not be a priest. And there were certain qualifications that they must meet if they were going to be a priest. For instance, if they were going to be a priest, they had to be a man. That was part of the prerequisite. They had to be a man who was from the lineage of Aaron. Aaron was the very first high priest. He was Moses' brother. They had to be from the tribe of Levi because that was a priestly line. That's where we get our, the book that we read, Leviticus. It's about priestly things. And they were called the Levites. A priest could not serve as a priest if he had a physical defect. If he had a, a maimed hand or a maimed foot, or if he was blind. The Bible says if he had a marred face, he could not serve in the temple. That would eliminate a lot of pastors today. In Leviticus chapter 21, verse 21, it says this. No man of the descendants of Aaron, the priest, who has a defect, shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So a priest had to be appointed Jesus did not appoint himself as high priest. 
Now, you might wonder about that. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to be a high priest. He didn't appoint himself. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. It says, also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Jesus did not appoint himself as high priest. He was appointed by God the Father. God the Father appointed God the Son to be our high priest. So he was appointed as the high priest. Not only must the high priest be appointed, but I want you to look back at verse 1 for a moment. Because you might gloss over this if you're not careful. In Hebrews chapter 5, in verse 1, it says, For every high priest is taken from among men. Why did God want his priest to be one of the people? Why did God want his priest to be a human? And maybe not an angel? Well, he answered that question in the very next verse. Look at verse 2. So he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. You know, a man who faces the same heartaches, the same weaknesses, the same temptations, the same struggles can relate to those who are going through those things. So he wants a person who can relate to the people. A man who's been sick can understand how it feels when you're sick. And so God wanted somebody who could relate. Angels can't relate to what it's like to be human. Only another human can. And so the priest had to be somebody who was from among men. And then it says so that when the people were going astray, he would know how to assist them. And that's why the priest had to be from among the people. I heard a story about two priests who were standing beside the edge of the road and they held up a sign. And the sign said, The end is near. Turn around before it's too late. The end is near. Turn around before it's too late. And all of a sudden, these car full of teenage boys came flying by. And they saw those priests out there with that sign that says, The end is near. Turn around before it's too late. And one of those teenage boys yelled out at those priests as he rode by. He said, leave us alone, you religious nut. As that car passed by a few seconds later, those priests heard the skid marks of that car sliding sideways. And then a few seconds later, they heard a splash. And one priest said to the other, do you think we just need to put up a sign that says the bridge is out? You know, a human priest shares struggles so that he can help people who are Going astray. Why? Because he knows what it's like to go astray. The priest knows what it's like to wander away from God. And so he understands the sins of the people. In fact, whenever the priest would go into the, to the, to, 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 to the tabernacle to make atonement for the people, he had to make atonement for his own sin. Because he was in the same boat. And you need to know that your pastor has the same struggles that you have. The same kind of frustrations you do. You know your pastor gets frustrated when things don't work out right sometimes. Just like you do. Your pastor gets tired and worn out just like you do. Your pastor has 24 hours in a day just like you do. Your pastor has the same responsibilities at home just like you do. Because I am one of you. I have flesh and blood just like you have. I struggle with temptation just like you do. I struggle with sin just like you do. Why? Because I'm not immune. Your pastor is not perfect and I'll let you know neither is the church he pastors. We're all sinful, and that's why we need to be gracious with each other, because we are of the same flock. 
We're all human and we have the same struggles. And Jesus is our legitimate high priest because not only was he appointed, but he put on flesh and blood and he walked among us like us so he could relate to us. Jesus is legitimate. He is legitimate in his role as high priest. But you might say, yeah, but Jesus wasn't from the tribe of, of Levi. Levi. He wasn't from the lineage of Aaron. How does he qualify as the high priest? Well, look at verse 6 in chapter 5. The writer of Hebrews introduces something that maybe you have never really paid attention to. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, he says, But you, talking about Jesus, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. How many of you ever really paid much attention to Melchizedek? I mean, a lot of people don't even know his name. And yet the writer of Hebrews all of a sudden just brings up Melchizedek from out of thin air, apparently. Now, it might not mean anything to you, but it certainly meant something to the people who read the book of Hebrews because they had heard that name before. Because if you were to go back and don't do it right now, just write it down. But in Genesis 14, that's where we see Melchizedek introduced onto the scene. Abraham had a nephew named Lot. And Lot was living in Sodom and Gomorrah where he really shouldn't have been. But while he was there, some raiders came in, some, some thieves, and they kidnapped Lot. And they took all the possessions of the people who were living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Abraham, Uncle Abe, decided he needed to go intervene. And so he went and chased down those thieves, and he got Lot back, and he got all those possessions back. Well, after that battle was done, and Abraham had reclaimed all those things, and I'm not, I'm not going to unpack Genesis 14. We'll do that another day. But after that happened, Abraham met two kings. He met the king of Sodom, and he met the king of Salem. And the king of Salem, his name was Melchizedek. And that happened in Genesis 14. And we don't know a lot about Melchizedek. He's only mentioned a few times in the Bible in Genesis 14. Then, strangely enough, King David mentions Melchizedek in Psalm 110, verse 4. And David said this, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. David was prophesying about a coming king, a coming priest who would come afterward, who was going to be greater than the Levite priest. You see, Jesus was not from the order of Aaron. He was from the order of Melchizedek. And David knew that back in Psalm 110, verse 4. Well, who was Melchizedek? And what does that mean anything to us today? Look, you're going to have to flip over now to Hebrews 7, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. This is Melchizedek. Underlying king of Salem. Priest of the Most High God, underscore priest. Who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. In the Levitical priesthood, there were no kings and priests. A person could be a king, or he could be a priest, but he could not be both. And there is never a mention of a king and a priest in the Levitical priesthood. There wasn't an Israelite who was a king or a priest. Mel Melchizedek wasn't Jewish from what we can discern. He wasn't part of the Levitical priesthood, 
But he was a priest and he was a king. And he was a type of Christ. Now you might remember in 1 Samuel chapter 13, there was a man named King Saul. And King Saul was getting ready to go to battle with the Philistines. And he had to wait on the prophet Samuel to meet with him so that he could make a sacrifice before they went into battle with the Philistines. Well, Samuel didn't show up on time. He didn't show up when he said he was going to be there. For some reason, he was late. And so you know what King Saul did? I'm going to make this sacrifice. Just move over. Bring that animal over here. I can do this on my own. I don't have to wait on Samuel. I'm the king. I can do it myself. And so he brought that animal in. He sacrificed that animal as if he were a priest, which was not his role. And when Samuel ro rolled into town, he found out what Samuel did. He said, who do you think you are? You are not a priest. That's not your role. And because you have done this, God has ripped the kingdom out of your hand and will give it to another. God took that seriously because that wasn't his role. And then later in another passage of scripture, in, in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, there was another king named Uzziah. And Uzziah decided one day, I'm going to go and burn incense in the temple. And that was a role that was reserved for the priest. Only the priest could go burn incense in the holy place. Well, King Uzziah decided, I'm going to go and burn incense myself. And the high priest Azariah said, where, where do you think you're going? You don't belong in here. This is not your place. And King Uzziah would not listen. And God struck him with leprosy and he died, ultimately, with leprosy later. God took it seriously because there was not going to be a priest and king in the Levitical priesthood. So what's the point about Melchizedek? Jesus is higher and greater than all the other priests because he is a king and he is a priest. He is on the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. He's both king of kings and the high priest. He is better than the Old Testament priest. Now look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. What a wonderful passage. I told, this is a little bit meaty. I understand that. So stay awake. Everybody look up for a minute. I want you to see this verse. It's 711. Listen to what it says. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. That's where we got the law from, was from the Levitical priesthood. What further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron. Do you see the difference? Jesus is not from the order of Aaron. He's from the order of Melchizedek. He is greater than the Old Testament priest. You say, well, I'm not convinced. Look at verse 714. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Melchizedek is a type of Christ and he shows us that Jesus is both the king of kings and the high priest. He is better. He is legitimate. And in, and in the Bible it says that Melchizedek is known as the king of righteousness and the king of what? Does anybody know? Peace. King of righteousness and the king of peace. And you know what that tells me? You will never know peace until you know the king of righteousness. You will never know the peace of God until you have the righteousness of God. And you don't get God's righteousness by your own good works. We get God's righteousness by his own good work for us. That's what that means. You know, we sing the song, My One Defense. 
my what? It's really his righteousness that's been given to me. He made me righteous. He put his righteousness on me. And whenever there was a day in my life, maybe there was a day in your life, I bowed my knee before God. I confessed my sin to him and I put my faith in Jesus. And when I did that, he gave me his righteousness. So I stand today righteous, not on my own, but because Jesus made me righteous. He is the king of righteousness. And you will never have peace without the righteousness of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Our salvation isn't dependent on us. Isn't it wonderful that he gives us his righteousness and we don't have to rely on our own? I don't know about you, but that's amen. Thank God we're not saved by our own goodness. So we see the legitimacy of Jesus as the high priest, but I want you to also see the eternality. I know that's a big word, but Jesus is eternal. It's the eternality of Jesus. He is legitimate, but he's also eternal. You know, Jesus' life did not begin 2,000 years ago when he was born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. His life did not begin then. He always was, he always is, and he always will be. He is eternal. That's Jesus that we serve. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 6 says this, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then, I do want you to look at this verse, chapter 7 verse 3. I told you we're going back and forth. But in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3, He gives you a description as to why Melchizedek kind of represents Jesus. He says, Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But he was made like the Son of God and remains a priest continually. Now, it doesn't mean that Melchizedek had no father or mother. We just don't know who they were. We don't know his genealogy because we don't know enough about him to really know. So it's like he was eternal. He was symbolic of Jesus. He was a picture of Christ. He was a type of Christ. Now Melchizedek is like an object lesson for us. We don't know much about his heritage, so it's like he's eternal. But Jesus is eternal. He never had a beginning. And let me just say, when you think about an eternal priest, you know in the Old Testament, the priest didn't live forever. They would die. So they couldn't live forever. And a Levitical priest eventually died. Hebrews 7.23 says, There were many priests. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing. They weren't eternal. They couldn't continue. They would die. An Old Testament priest had a shelf life. And so they would have to replace him. But Jesus continues to be our high priest forever and ever. Did you know, and some of you have done this, because I know... Some of you have some age on you because you knew what an LP was. But some of you have lived long enough where you had a doctor and you would go to that doctor or that dentist and eventually they either retired or expired. And when they did, what did you have to do? You had to find a new one. That's kind of what it was like for them. They would have a priest who would minister to them, who would counsel them, who would make atonement for them. They would have a priest who would, who would serve them and and encourage them and instruct them. But then eventually that priest would die. And when they did, they'd have to find another priest because he didn't live forever. But when we think about Jesus, he's better than them because he is a priest forever. He is eternal. And so we see that that Jesus is our great high priest because of his supremacy, because of his legitimacy, and because of his eternality. But I want to give you my second point. That's a lot for one point, wasn't it? This will be shorter, but I think it's going to be deep. 
we see the sufficiency of Christ. We see the sufficiency of Christ because He was sufficient in His ministry and He is sufficient in His sympathy. Jesus is sufficient in His ministry. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it says this, "...who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to Him, who was able to save Him from death and was heard because of His godly fear." This is, I believe, referring to Jesus' prayer in the garden. Do you remember how anguishing that prayer was? Because he knew he was about to go to the cross. And Jesus was agonizing over the cross. He was going to suffer for our sin. He was going to become our sin. All of our iniquity was going to be laid on Jesus. And here's the point. What we have at Calvary is so much better than what they had in the tabernacle. What we have at Calvary is so much better than what they had in the tabernacle. You know, a tabernacle was really just a picture of Calvary. It was a, a representation of Jesus. It was a, it was a shadow of things to come. A picture is not a real thing. You know that, right? And a shadow is not a real thing. I mean, for example, a shadow is just a, really a representation of something else that's real, that's coming. You know, a shadow can't hurt you, and a shadow can't help you. If, I had a, if you had a shadow of a key, it won't unlock a door. If you see a shadow of a dog, it can't bite you because a shadow cannot help you and it cannot hurt you. It is just a symbol of something that's coming that is real. For example, if you're walking down the road and one day you see a shadow of a dog coming towards you, you don't have to worry because that shadow is not going to bite you. The shadow is not what you need to be afraid of. You need to be afraid of what that shadow represents because it might be coming. And... The tabernacle is a shadow of Jesus. It is representing something real that was on the horizon. And in that tabernacle, there would be three sections. I wish I had a diagram. There were three sections. and There was the outer court. And when you walked in, it had one way in, one door. That's the only way you could get access to God was through that one door. There weren't many ways. There was one way. Isn't that like a representation of Jesus? There's only one way to God. The Bible says that, that we only have one way to Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through him. He is the only door. One door. And so the tabernacle was a shadow of Jesus. It had one way in. And the Israelites would go into that tabernacle. And when they walked in, there would be a bronze altar there. And that's where they would sacrifice those animals. And so if when you would go in there and you needed to atone for your sin, you would go in there and you'd have your sacrificial animal with you. The priest would be there kind of waiting on you to come in because he knows you're coming. And then when you would get there, you would, you would put your hands on the head of that, that animal. It would be like you're transferring your sin to that animal in some way. And then it, it didn't happen really. It's symbolically. And then you would, you would slaughter that, that animal and the priest would catch that blood in a basin. And then he would put that blood on the altar to atone for your sin. It's a picture of Jesus. It's a shadow of something real that was taking place. And every single day and every single week and every single month and every single year, those sacrifices were being offered for people's sin. Every single day. It was continuous. There was no end to it. You know, can you imagine if you were to go into that tabernacle and see all those animals being slaughtered? What would enter your mind? How, how grotesque that would be. You know why I think Jesus did that? You know, you know why God wanted the, temple, the tabernacle to look that way? So you would never forget the horror 
and wickedness of our sin. It was a picture you would not forget. We take sin so lightly, but God doesn't take it so lightly. It's a very serious thing. And so the priest could go into the... Then after that, the priest could go into the very next section, which was called the holy place. And in there, there was a table of showbread. And there was a lamp that he would keep lit and kept it burning. He would put oil in the lamp and keep it burning. And then he would, he would burn incense. And he did it as symbolic prayer, going up to God continually. And he would do that every day. You know, a priest's work was never done. He's always having to do the same thing over and over and over. He never had an end to it. It was kind of like doing laundry. I mean, you, you, you do your laundry, and at the end of the day, you think, man, I'm so glad I got that behind me. And you know what? Tomorrow you got to do what? you got to do laundry. I mean, we think we get done with something, and we realize we just got done for the day. we got to do it again tomorrow. And that's how the priest was. Every day it was the same thing, year after year, day after day. And then once a year, the high priest will go into the holy of holies, the most holy place, one time a year, every year. And when he'd go into the Holy of Holies, he'd go beyond the veil to where the Ark of the Covenant was. And we're going to talk about this tonight, so if you want to hear the rest of this, you need to be here tonight. But he would go in there and he'd put blood on the mercy seat. He'd make atonement for our sin or for the people's sin. Jesus did that for us. But that's how he would do it. He'd pour the blood on the, the mercy seat. Now, the tabernacle is just a shadow of something real that was coming later. And his name was Jesus. And his name is Jesus. You know, the blood of animals can't remove the stain of sin. It didn't remove the stain of sin then, and it doesn't now. Animals can't do that. Do you know, let me give you an idea how this would work. Whenever they would bring those sacrifices for atonement, it would be kind of like me going down to Anderson Bank over here and taking out a loan. And I said, I need a loan. And they'd give me a loan. And they said, now, at the end of the year, you've got to pay that balance off. Well, let's say the end of the year comes around, and guess what? I don't have enough to pay the balance. So I said, hey, can we refinance? And I said, well, yes, you can refinance, and we'll just add your interest that you didn't pay to that balance. And now what happened? I still owe, and now I'm deeper in debt. And let's say at the end of the year, I'm supposed to pay that balance off again. I get to the end of the year, I still don't have it. I said, can I refinance? And we do it another year. And all that interest is added and instead of my, my debt being paid off, I, get, I keep getting deeper and deeper in debt. You know, it's kind of the way it was for those, those Israelites. They were making atonement, but it really wasn't covering their sin. It was like refinancing their debt, their sin debt, every year, year after year, until eventually they were looking forward to somebody who could pay off the debt. And that somebody was Jesus, who paid the debt in full. They were just moving the debt along until Calvary. And so what we have at Calvary is so much better than what they had at the tabernacle. Jesus paid our debt in full, once and for all. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 says this. For such a high priest was fitting for us. Why? Because he was holy. He was harmless or blameless. He was undefiled. He was separate from sinners. He has become higher than the heavens. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God who takes away our sin. He was holy. He was blameless. He was undefiled. He never sinned. Jesus never lied. Jesus never was greedy. Jesus never gossiped. Jesus never was intoxicated. Jesus never committed adultery. Jesus never held a grudge. He was the spotless Lamb of God. And I love what Hebrews 7.27 says about Jesus. He is so much different. It says, 
who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered himself up. Jesus didn't need to offer a sacrifice for his own sin because he was sinless. He was blameless. He covered our sin once and for all. How many of you have ever heard of the finished work of Jesus? You ever heard that term? The finished work of Jesus. Do you know what the finished work of Jesus is? Do you remember him when he was hanging on the cross? And before he died, he said three words. It is finished. The finished work of Christ. What does that mean? The finished work of Christ. It means that he finished all the need for any more sacrifice. I'm going to give you two verses that are not in chapter 5 and 7. But Hebrews chapter 10, 14 says this. Hebrews 10, 14 says, By one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. By one offering. And then slide back up to verse 12 for a moment. Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin, sat down at the right hand of God. Now that's a big word, but did you know that there was no chair in the temple? There was no chair in the tabernacle? Do you know why they had no chair in the tabernacle? Do you know if you're working and uh, you're supposed to be hands-on and you got a chair, what will you be doing? Sitting. A priest never had time to sit because his work was never done. And the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross for mine and your sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Father because the work was finished. The finished work of Jesus. And so when Jesus died for your sin and he died for my sin, he finished the work. But let me just say this. Just because Jesus died for you doesn't mean his blood has been applied to you. And let me explain. When that high priest went into the Holy of Holies, there was an ark there and a mercy seat. Do you know what he had when he went into that ark, to the Holy of Holies? He had the blood of the sacrifice in his hand. But it had not been applied to the mercy seat. And until the blood is applied to the mercy seat, atonement has not been made. Jesus has died for all of our sin, but it doesn't mean that the blood has been applied. It doesn't get applied till you, the Bible says, confess your sin until you repent and put your faith in Jesus. Romans 10 says it this way, that you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Some people think you're just going to be saved. But you're not saved until the blood is applied. It had to be applied then and it has to be applied now. And the question is, have you done that? Have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ? Have you done that? And the last thing I want you to see is this. We see the ministry of Jesus, but I want you to see the sympathy of Jesus. Look at verse 5, verse, I mean chapter 5, verse 8. Hebrews 5, 8. It says this, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, I don't, I don't want you to miss this. And I, I know, I know you're hot. I know I've been sitting a while. I want you to just zoom in for just a moment. Whenever Jesus put on flesh, the Bible says he learned obedience through suffering. And what that means is, Whatever you're going through, whatever heartache, whatever suffering, whatever pain, whatever experience, Jesus can relate. 
He's had similar experiences that you have had or that you have. He can sympathize with you. You say, I don't know about that. I mean, has Jesus ever had a, has he ever been abandoned by somebody he loves? Do you not remember this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned by his father in that critical moment on the cross because Jesus had taken our sin on himself and sin always separates us from God. And whenever the father looked at Jesus, he forsook him. Does Jesus know? You know, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are so hypostatically united in perfect fellowship. And all of a sudden that was broken for a moment when Jesus died on the cross. Does he understand that kind of pain? Yes. Jesus understands it. You know, Jesus knows the pain of loneliness. He knows the pain of rejection. He knows the pain of being forsaken. He knows the pain of being abandoned by friends. He knows the pain of physical abuse. I mean, Jesus was beaten and crucified. He understands physical abuse. He knows what it's like to be homeless. The Bible said he had no place to lay his head. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry. Jesus knows what it's like to be so broken that he weeps. You know, some people say, well, if you're a real man, you wouldn't weep. Jesus wept. I'd rather be in that category. Some people say, well, does Jesus know what it's like to have a a body that's just failing? Think about Jesus being beaten with a cat of nine tails. You remember that instrument? It was a whip. It had rock and glass and stone and things tied to the end of it. So when they would would lash somebody with that cat of nine tails and they would pull back, it would just pull the flesh off of a person's back. So much sometimes that they could see the organs functioning in the back or the ribs exposed. And most of the time, if they weren't careful, whoever the lictor was, if he wasn't careful, he would kill that person because they would die from the lack of blood. And Jesus was beaten with a cat of nine tails. He understands what it feels like to begin to bleed out. He understands. He feels our pain. You know, Jesus even knows what, it's, what, it, what sin feels like. Now, Jesus never sinned. But he knows what sin feels like. Because all of our sin was put on him. He became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. He understands what it feels like, what adultery feels like. He understands what homosexuality feels like. He understands what greed feels like. He understands what pride feels like, those sins. He understands what the sin of unforgiveness feels like. Jesus never committed those sins, but he became those sins. He understands what it feels like. Jesus has felt the guilt of shame. He has felt the uh, of sin. He's felt the shame of sin. He's felt the judgment of sin. So, whatever you're going through, Jesus feels it. He knows. He can sympathize with whatever you're going through. And let me just say this in closing. We have a sympathetic high priest who knows our suffering. You have a priest who can sympathize. When you're suffering, you can take your struggle to your high priest who is always interceding on your behalf. Jesus is not in the tabernacle interceding for you. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. He says, I know what that feels like. I don't just know it, but I feel it. He's interceding. Hebrews 7.25 says this, and you ought to underline it when you're going through a hard day. He says, he always lives to make intercession for us. 
That's what Jesus does. He makes intercession for us because he can sympathize with us. Aren't you thankful for a great high priest like that? Well, the writer of Hebrews says it doesn't get any better than Jesus. I hope that you understand the gravity of having a high priest like Jesus. Would you bow with me as we pray? And as you've got your head bowed, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. If you've never been saved, if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, what would prevent you from doing that today? What in this world is better than Jesus? And maybe today you just need to say, you know, I, I need my sin forgiven. I need the blood applied to my life. And maybe today, as we have our invitation in just a moment, I want to invite you to come. Or maybe this morning you just need to come and lay something at this altar. You, maybe you need to bring something to the, our high priest who can sympathize with you. And maybe you're going through something you just need to share with him. And maybe that's what you need to do this morning. This altar was here for you to do that. Or maybe this morning you just need to thank God for having a high priest who gives us his righteousness. Maybe that's what you need to do. Would you do that? Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for being the supreme high priest who meets our needs and tones for our sin and sympathizes with our weakness. And so as we come to this moment in closing, I just pray if there's anybody here that is outside of Christ, has never trusted you, maybe they sat in this church for years, but maybe today they need, to, they need to have the blood applied to their lives. Lord, would you draw them today? Lord, I pray for others that are going through something that just need an ear in your ear. Lord, I pray that you'll give them the courage to step out and bring it to you. And for others, Lord, I just pray that we'll be uh, thankful and we'll show our gratitude. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this morning? You respond how the Lord leads you. Our praise band is going to lead us.
thank you for being here this morning. I look forward to seeing you tonight for our Christmas communion. Always a special time. I hope that you'll be here. We're going to unpack a little bit more of uh, that tabernacle tonight. So I hope you don't miss it as it relates to our new covenant that we celebrate. Let me just pray for us as we go out. Uh, if you're visiting with us, please stop by our, our Welcome Center table out here in the vestibule. We'd love the opportunity to speak with you before you leave. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to be together in worship today. Thank you for... Um, giving us the gift of life through Christ, and we celebrate you today. Thank you for putting on human skin so that you could relate to us. And now, as we go out, help us to reflect you in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.